Good morning, everybody. Nice to have you here. How many of you have read this book? It's called I Used to Be Perfect by George Knight. Anybody read it? I know Susanna has, because I asked her to read it. I suggested she read it. She said everybody in this church should read this book after she read it. And it's not, it's not, um, well, I don't want to put the book down. It's a, it's a book that we used to use for the youth in Sacramento. And the youth pastor just swore by this. He wanted his young people to understand the gospel and never get into something called perfectionism. Today I'm going to talk about perfection. And I might sometimes use the word perfectionism which to me is a little bit different than what the Bible says, be perfect. So I hope you don't get discouraged. And I'm also going to use a chapter in this book. So what I'm going to do today is quite different than what I normally do. Normally when I prepare a sermon, I ask the Lord to just, just lay the burden on my heart. And he's laid the burden for this uh, at least a couple of months ago. And then... Um, and usually I just have a, my own outline and figure out how I'm going to preach it. Today I'm going to use the chapter of this book. So I hope I don't have my head down reading too much. I think by following the outline of the chapter, I can best get the idea across. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you for all those that you've called into your church family. And Lord, sometimes we hear the call, but we don't really quite get the understanding that we should have. And that certainly was the case with George Knight. So Lord, help us to, to hear his story this morning. And also, as we interact with your word, help us to gain maybe different understanding, a better understanding of what your expectations of us are. And we thank you for your goodness and for your grace and for your power. May your Holy Spirit be with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, usually I say, pick up your Bible, so pick up your Bible. And I'm going to give you a text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. First book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. What chapter? Chapter 5. What verse? Verse 48. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I know that we can have different translations of the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. It's all a learning experience as far as I'm concerned. Most of them seem to have the word perfect. I want you to think of another word this morning that means what the Bible says about us being perfect. Now, we know when we talk about God being perfect, we are talking about God without being 
without having any defect whatsoever, right? Those of us that studied Genesis this morning, that we, we brought that idea out. Everything he made was good, really good. So that's the understanding. When we say God is perfect, we mean flawless. But we really don't mean that when we talk about human beings. The Bible doesn't mean that either in most of the text where it says be perfect. So let me give you some other words, and you might want to write one or two of these down. Mature, merciful, complete, full-grown, whole, the word integrity, sincerity, right, and blameless. Those are what I would call substitute words in different translations. You'll hear some of that language. Pretty much all meaning the same thing. Be ye perfect, be you totally dedicated, consecrated to God. That's what it means. Take that text out of its context, and I know I didn't read it in context, then you'll probably misunderstand it. Okay, back to George. He says, the most important thing that you can know about me is that I used to be perfect. Notice the past tense, I used to be perfect. I used to be perfect in a way that I am not perfect now. Why was I perfect? I was perfect because I was a Seventh-day Adventist. I was perfect because Jesus was going to come. And, to, and in all sincerity, I wanted translation faith. Anybody want translation faith here this morning? Ah, some of you are bold enough to put your hands up. What about translation character? Ah, it's a little bit more specific. What about translation perfection? Ah, you're not quite sure about that one. Hey, the more perfect, the more like God you are. So I think we should want that too. Certainly George did. He said, I was converted from agnosticism to Seventh-day Adventism at the age of 19. After becoming an Adventist, I looked around my church, its members, its preachers, and I came to one conclusion. What a mess. You people had not pulled it off. And I soon reasoned that you had failed in becoming perfect because you had not tried hard enough. I would be different. I would not fail. I would try harder than any of you had ever tried. And at the time, I was working high construction steel over San Francisco Bay. And I still remember meditating on the problem one day high above the bay. And it was then that I consciously decided and verbally committed myself to be the first perfect Christian since Christ. And I meant it. I was desperately sincere. And then before we get into the rest of his story, he talks about Adventism's fascination with perfection. And he uses some text, which you may or may not want to look at. I think most of you have them in, in your head anyway. First one is Revelation 12, 17. The dragon was angry with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, 
on those who keep the commandments of God. Now, I'm sure, even though he doesn't say it, that he heard those texts preached in an evangelistic series when he decided to become a Seventh-day Adventist. And I'm sure also that all the, the, the jigsaw pieces of truth seem to fit together so that George says, yes, this is the way, this is the truth, this is what I should follow. And then he says, um, the hour of his judgment is come in Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And he gives a little bit of background on that and how early Adventists tended to understand these texts. And they tended to understand them in a way that here they that keep the commandments of God. Well, if you want to know God's people, who's keeping the commandments of God? But where it got a little bit different was when it talks about the faith of Jesus or the faith in Jesus. And then he mentions Minneapolis. Now, I know that Marion's doing a remnant series very soon in her home, so, so I'd encourage her to study Minneapolis at least one time with the group. Um, because we, and probably I should have a number of sermons on that, on Adventist history, especially the Minneapolis General Conference session. That was around 1888, and it was a, a very special time in the history of the church. But this little phrase, the faith of or the faith in Jesus Christ, was tended to be a little bit differently redefined at that time. He also mentions um, faith in Jesus being absolutely sinless, as Jesus was absolutely sinless. And then he mentions uh, Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. And then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. And with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, not just part of the way, all of the way. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no lie, for they are spotless. Who wants to be spotless? Should all put our hands up. Want to be part of the 104,000? Want to be spotless? Want to be perfect? King James says they are without fault before the throne of God. Without fault sounds good spotless sounds good. I think I'll go in for that, and George did in a very, very serious way. Also, before we get into that, also Revelation 14, 14 and 15, linking these verses up, the harvest of the earth. Then I looked, and lo, a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head, sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So we talk about that as harvest theology. Ellen White, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his 
own. So there were some dear saints in the church who shared that quotation from Christ's object lessons with young George. Remember, he's wet behind the ears. He's come from a, an agnostic background, probably a non-church background, and he needs to be disciples. He needs to be mentored in the right way, not in the wrong way. So you can imagine after having hearing those texts and then looking at a statement like that, George took that pretty seriously. He says, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody who is perfect. Sometimes I close my eyes and visualize some of the perfect people I've known. Here comes now one now across the screen of my imagination. She is very satisfied with herself because she has gotten the victory over cheese. Here comes another one. This one is a first century Pharisee. He's very religious. He knows exactly what size rock he can carry on the Sabbath day and how far he can carry it without carrying a burden and thus committing sin. He has shaved righteousness down to some very slim slivers of religion. He is convinced that with such dedication to lifestyle detail, he will soon be perfect. Then there are those who seem to be perfect through health reform. In one little Adventist church of 30 members, there's an elder who is willing to take communion service to the shut-ins. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. But he will not partake of the emblems with them because that would be eating between meals. And then he asks the question, I wonder what communion means to such an elder. The same congregation as a man six foot five inches tall who weighs only 130 pounds. He's achieved tremendous dietary victories as he has moved toward being perfect like Christ. He has even convinced himself that it is wrong to eat grains such as wheat and oats. And as a result, unfortunately, he finds himself lusting for strange things. Every Wednesday, he falls and eats two puffed rice patties. This man in his own eyes is moving along the track to real perfection. And when a person is down to two puffed rice patties a week, as his most sinful activity, he must be getting somewhere. Such a one must be almost perfect, or at least along the line of perfection. And then he goes on to give some other examples which, uh, on, in health, which Ellen White in her day called health deform, not reform. He said, Seventh-day Adventists have gone in strange directions in their quest for character perfection. Perhaps that, that is because most of us don't have the slightest idea what character really is, nor what, nor what Ellen White means by character perfection. The Christ Object Lessons passage I quoted above had a large impact on my Adventist experience. Now, I want you to remember, and this is what really intrigued me about this story, Here's a very, very young convert. If there's anyone that needs the right kind of guidance, it's such a person as this. Soon after I became a Seventh-day Adventist, some dear saint showed me that passage, and it was after reading that, that Christ would come after his character had been perfectly reproduced in his children that I consciously decided I would be the first perfect Christian since Christ and immediately set out on my quest. As a result, within a few weeks, I could tell what was wrong with almost everything. I could tell you what was wrong with anything you might want to eat. I could tell you what was wrong with anything you might want to, to watch. 
I could tell you what was wrong with almost anything you might want to do, and I could tell you what was wrong with almost anything you might want to think. I became an expert at pointing out the wrong in everybody and everything. In my own rigorous approach to diet, I went from 165 pounds to roughly 123 pounds in about three months. Some feared that I would die of health reform. And I want you to know something in my striving to become perfect. I became perfect. I was the perfect Pharisee after the order of Saul before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. I was the perfect monk after the order of Martin Luther before he discovered the gospel in Romans. I was the perfect Methodist after the order of the struggling, striving John Wesley before his Aldersgate conversion experience. And as I later discovered, my path to perfection had been well trod before me. Well, he goes on to talk about the more perfect he became, the more self-centered he became. In short, the harder I tried, the worse I got. And that was the paradox of my perfection. In my route to perfectly reproducing the character of Christ, I had more closely mirrored the character of the devil. To say the least, I became a difficult person to live with. People became a problem in my life as I sought to emulate the character of the Savior. After all, people got in the way of my dietary rigor, and they interfered with my thoughtful hour of meditating upon Christ each day. People hampered my reaching out for perfection. And then he goes on to talk about which something that came very close to my heart. He became a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Now, this is pretty mind-boggling stuff. Here, we're not just talking about a young convert who seems to understand the essence of the doctrines, but clearly does not understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, it looks like there was nobody to help him to understand that. So, whether he went to college, seminary, or what, it doesn't say, but he ends up in a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. What kind of message is now going to be preached? What kind of harm is going to be done? Because the preacher himself doesn't understand what good news is. After a period of trying to be a perfect Adventist Christian and pastor, he handed his credentials in. This stuff just wasn't working. Conference president looks at them, sends them back in the mail. Some time later, second time, sends his credentials in. President talks to him, encourages him not to take that step. Third time, a nasty letter accompanies the credentials. Then the conference president took his credentials, and now George Knight is out of the Seventh-day Adventist ministry. Now, some of you might think that's good because he probably did a whole lot of damage while he was uh, teaching and preaching in those churches but he went into a spiritual wilderness. Now remember, this is a man that is totally dedicated to becoming like Christ. And obviously there's a right way and a wrong way 
to do that. He studies philosophy. Isn't philosophy the quest for truth? And he found that philosophy was a dead-end track. And then some years later, some time later, he felt that there really was no answer. Christianity didn't, didn't have the answer. There really were no answers, and that really scared him. And then sometime after that, God reached down and took George Knight by the scruff of the neck. And somehow, someway, this man understood that Jesus had really died for his sins, and he embraced the good news of Christ. And he says, if only he had read the context of those Bible texts and the context of those statements in Christ Objects Lessons. Context, context, context. We talked about that earlier today in my class. So he gives us an example of context. Listen to the context. This may be the most important part of this message. Let us look at the context of the statement from Christ Object Lessons on page 67 and 68 about reproducing the character of Christ. In the immediate preceding paragraphs, we read, Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men. And he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. There can be no growth or fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. If you have accepted Christ as a personal Savior, you are to forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ. Tell of His goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry the burden of souls upon your heart. And as you receive the Spirit of Christ, the spirit of unselfish love and labor for others, you will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character, your faith will increase, your convictions deepen, your love will be made perfect. Now we're getting into context. We're not taking statements out of context. More and more you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. The next few lines contain the statement that when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Perfectly reproducing the character of Christ is what? Have you figured it out? Perfectly reproducing the character of Christ is reflecting his love. The character of Christ centers in the caring relationship. Too often Adventists have looked at religion as a negative, but Christianity is not what we don't do. No one will ever be saved by what he or she avoided. Christianity is a positive rather than a negative. True Christianity is a religion that frees us from preoccupation with ourselves and struggling to earn our salvation so that we can truly love our neighbor, our God, our brother, our wife, sister, and so on. 
That was the great message of Jesus when he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now turn to that passage in Matthew 5, 48. Because when I read it to you at the beginning of this sermon, I didn't give you any context for that. So we'll go back, just for the sake of time, to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Does the Bible say love your neighbor? Does the Bible say hate your enemy? No, so that was what the Pharisees were teaching. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are, are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if we look at the context, it's pretty obvious that it says this, that God our heavenly Father showers his blessings on the good and the evil people, on all people. They all res receive in some measure, sunshine, rain, whatever it might be, some type of blessing. So, if God does that, so should we. If God blesses all, so should we. We can't just have our favorite few. The blessings are to be for all. Then, of course, if we take it to the next level, Christ died for all. If we really, really believe that, didn't just die for wealthy white Caucasians who happen to live in North America, especially on the West Coast, California, which is the coolest place to live, don't you think so? No, he died for all. So if God in his goodness via creation or redemption died for all and shows us a love like that, so we should love all too. Take another passage in the same context, Luke 6, 36. Here's where we find an alternate word for perfection. It's the same kind of idea, be perfect, but it's a different terminology that's used. Chapter 6, what verse? 36. Notice the context, for example, verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Your reward will be great in heaven. Um, you'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful. So instead of saying perfect, it's saying the word merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I won't go into another text, which is Matthew. If you want to write it down, Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46. That's the great judgment scene, which swings the whole story, the whole illustration swings on one point, that we, that those who are saved did kindness and good and showed love to those that were thirsty, those that were hungry, and so on and so forth. So you get the, getting the idea now. We've, we've been confronted right at the beginning with the concept of being perfect. Then we've tried to define just a little bit, maybe an alternate word or words 
for the idea of perfect, that's going to help your mind get away from possibly just the idea of flawlessness in, in, our, in our characters uh, by coming up with words like merciful, whole, complete, mature, and so on. We've seen how George struggled so hard. Probably not anyone as more sincere as he was, but it just wasn't working. And now we've looked at a few texts. I'll, I'll sh show you a few more texts just to make the point a little before we finish George's story off. Go to Colossians chapter 1. I think I'll give you some uh, page references. Those that are using the Bible in the pews, Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians in the New Testament. What chapter? Chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. That's on page 18333. And Colossians 1, 27 and 28 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. What we will see as we look at some of these verses here, we have a present perfection, and we also have a future perfection. This is not unusual in the New Testament. Okay, let's go to some other text, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. So that's near the end of the New Testament, book of Hebrews chapter 10, that's on page 1873, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So there's the word perfect. And verse 14 because by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So there's a declaration that Christians who are being made holy in the process of being made holy, continuous, are also defined as perfect. And then 1 Corinthians 2, I believe it's 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6. Now, to really get the impact of this verse, you have to know what a mess the church family was in, in the book of Corinthians. Lots of problems in that church, but he still calls them saints. And here's something a little bit different. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So the idea of maturity there is a substitute word, at least in this translation, for the word perfect. The Bible never uses the word perfect, as far as I understand this topic, as far as human beings are concerned on this earth, 
if we mean by that without flaw. Yes, with God, without flaw. With human beings, we're still in a sinful body. Now, let's, talk, let's explore that a little bit more. Can we resist temptations? Do Christians have the power, the ability to do that? No, not of ourselves. We're in a relationship with Christ. So when I use the word Christians, we're in relationship. No Christian is isolated. They're not in themselves. They're in Christ. So Christian in Christ, do we have the ability to resist temptation? We do. The Bible is very, very clear on that point, though we're not exactly studying that. We're just trying to look at some of the implications of what it means to be whole, mature, or perfect. Um, it means another word that we could use is totally consecrated. In the past, I've, I've preached a number of sermons where, where God is saying, but they, they don't give me their whole heart. Aren't there a lot of texts like that? Jesus himself, love the Lord your God with part of your heart? No, with all of your heart. That's perfection. That's maturity. That's wholeness. That's completeness. Is it a finished product? No. It's perfect becoming perfect. It's holy becoming holy. Uh, an illustration could be you take one of these cute little children that was here this morning. You could pick them up, two, three, four-year-old. I don't know what age they're their cutest. What do you think the cutest age is? But they're pretty adorable when they're young. And you could take that and you put that besides a fully mature man. And we see the difference. Perfect in its stage of development. But not, as we would use the English language, fully mature. There's growth to be had. And I think most of us can kind of understand that concept of growth. Okay. Do you also see the point of love? There's certain concepts in Scripture. I noticed when we were doing spiritual gifts, and I did mention it at least one time, that when we were studying spiritual gifts, and we did that over a number of, of weeks and months, Pretty much every passage we looked at, I think every passage actually, there was one, see how good your memory is. Where'd you find the passages on spiritual gifts? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans. I'm looking at some of the elders now. Romans 12. 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. A good guess. Ephesians 4. Pretty easy to remember. Every one of those passages revolves around love. In other words, don't, yes, God gives his gifts to who he sees fit, but always exercise them under the umbrella of love. In the church of Corinth, some of them were not doing that, and it was offensive. In fact, it was quite offensive the scriptures teach that God allowed some of them to get sick because of their bad attitude towards others. Because when we talk of love, we're talking about not just loving God, but loving one another. 
In some ways, it's easier to love God than to love one another. Some of us are kind of prickly, don't you think so? Not that easy to get close to. But that's the test of our love. When we're with the brethren, when we're with the church family, to learn from one another, to grow from one another. No Christian can be isolated just getting their blessing from watching some TV preacher. For us to grow into the image of Christ, we need one another. God has ordained it that way. So love, whether it be spiritual gifts or whether it be this concept of perfection, love is the key to everything. You ever read that statement? Don't know, can't remember now where it is. Some of you will know. There could be a hundred conversions to the truth if we were loving and lovable Christians. Anyone remember that? Where now there is one. What would you sooner have, one or a hundred? How do you get the hundred? It seems so hard to win people to Christ. Don't we just need better preachers, better evangelists, spend more money on advertising? Or what about trying the biblical way? Becoming lovable and lovable Christians. Loving one another, even those we don't like. Is that possible? To love people you don't like? Some smart Alex said, the closest to perfection a person ever comes is when he fills out a job application form. I'm going to end up on this note. God's final demonstration to the universe. That thought brings us to the topic of God's final demonstration to the universe. In Christ Objects Lessons, we read that the last message of mercy to be given to the world, page 415, is a revelation of the character of love. The last message of mercy to be given to the world, the final message, is a revelation of God's character or His character of love. So it's not just a present thing where when we love one another, people will know that we're Christ's disciples, and it has that mission evangelistic element to it. It draws people, the love that God flows through you and I in whatever form it takes, even if it's little Jimmy in the story, or especially little Jimmy in the story, God can use all those, those uh, packets of love, so to speak, to draw people to Christ. In this day and age, 2013, and at the right at the end of the age. So that's what she's saying in that passage there. He says, when I go to camp meeting, which George Knight used to do a lot of that, maybe he still does, I can look out on an audience of 10,000 people and spot the so-called perfect ones at a glance. They are the ones who aren't smiling. They are the ones who apparently have nothing to celebrate and rejoice in because they do not have assurance in Christ. George Knight, 19 years of age, believing and accepting the Seventh-day Adventist message, clueless about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
If somebody were to come to me and explain that to me and said, does that man have the assurance? I would say, impossible. Impossible. You cannot have the assurance of Christ unless you really know that he's for you and not against you. Praise God. Somehow, someway, God found this man, got a hold of him, and brought him to a full understanding of the truth. And God has used him in a very powerful way. I think the man has over 30 books, if I've counted correctly. And um, most of them are on church history, Adventist history, in some way, shape, or form. But, and they're all helpful. I learn something. Everyone I read, I'll always learn something that I didn't know before. So I'd encourage you, probably have some in our church library, which Carol Manuel is trying to improve. Um, but God got a hold of this man and wanted to get a hold of this man at 19 years of age. What was necessary, either through the preaching or the teaching of that local church or some faithful church member who was sensitive to understand that this man is spiritually wet behind the ears. Someone's get a, well, we're not just going to leave it to the pastor. And I don't even know if they had a pastor. So there's a lot about this story that I don't know. But I do know that God is calling those of you that are perfect and mature to get alongside of those individuals. Every church has them, including Anderson, people who need help. They need spiritual help. They need guidance. They, the, the, the minimum that they should have is a clear explanation of what Jesus has done for them on Calvary. And that does not mean that he's just forgiven them their sins. It means a whole lot more than that. Somebody's got to make disciples. We have a process going on at our church now called Connections, which those of you who get involved in that will understand in a better way than you've ever understood before about what it means to make disciples. It's not the final answer to everything, but it's a good step along the way that can put this church on a more solid foundation, a more solid footing, especially when new converts come in or you have church members who somehow have missed the main point. Context, context, context. Study any topic, anything in Scripture, all the writings of Ellen White, so that you do not take that text out of context. Because if you do, who knows if you'll be like George Knight, five, six years in a spiritual wilderness after he had been pastoring in a Seventh-day Adventist pulpit. That's a travesty. And he's not the only one that I've mentioned to you. Years ago, I talked about Carlisle B. Haynes. Some of you know him from his book on, I think it's Moses or the Exodus, almost a classic book within the Seventh-day Adventist church that was written many years ago. Carlisle B. Haynes not only became a pastor, Carlisle B. Haynes climbed the corporate ladder in Adventism. I think he ended up in the union and, and division level and many years after being a Seventh-day Adventist, God got a hold of him and finally taught him the good news of Jesus Christ. Both smart men. Both intelligent men. George Knight became a professor at 
Andrews University for many years in church history. We're talking of intelligent people, but, but when it comes to spiritual things, it's not really based on intelligence. So we all have a responsibility, right? Those who are young in the faith, we're not talking about age now, spiritually young in the faith, a babe in Christ, those of us who are more mature and have learned some things along the way have a responsibility to impart that knowledge to them to help them, to disciple them so that they too can one day disciple others and God's kingdom can grow. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for Jesus. In the ultimate sense of the term, no one is as perfect as Jesus. And yet he comes along and he says to his disciples, to his audience, that we should be perfect like our heavenly Father. Lord, you are perfect in your sphere. Help us to be perfect in our sphere. Spend that time with Jesus. Be molded and shaped by your Holy Spirit into the lovely image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with everyone here this morning, Lord. Most of us, if not all of us, truly want the character of Christ. And Lord, we need to first understand what you've done for us. Understand that everything that we say and do needs to be covered with love. And we pray, Lord, for this growth of the Anderson Church, that it will be a spiritual growth, that it will be a loving and lovable church that will attract, that people will want to join, want to be around this church family. And Lord, we long for the second coming of Jesus Christ, because that's ultimately when we will find the fullness of perfection. And even going throughout eternity, Lord, when we have our glorified body, we will be always growing, always learning, always being molded into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us not to be content spiritually with status quo. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Fill us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.